Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I considered finishing this chapter because really it's all one thought. But the more that I got into this, the more rich that I saw that it really is. I've really been encouraged as we've gone through 2 Corinthians as to the richness of this book. Perhaps nothing but Hebrews sticks out to me as being really more meaty than the book of Hebrews has been thus far. I hope it's been that for you. We'll begin reading this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. We'll stop there for this morning. I'll never forget when I was listening to the radio several years ago, I'm hesitant to admit that I was listening to a local show entitled The Rick and Bubba Show. But the wisdom of Rick and Bubba continues to to ring true. They said one morning, you know you're getting old when you get hurt sleeping. And I'm like, that's it. That's it. I remember going to sleep when I was a kid and never even thinking, I hope I don't get hurt tonight (laughs) while I'm asleep. But that's true. I've always been somewhat physically active, never really wanted to lay around all day on the couch. These days, Wendy and I will go play two-round disc golf tournament, drink tons of fluids, make an hour drive home, and I've got to get someone to help me out of the car. (laughs) These kids that go with us, they don't seem to be bothered by that at all. They just just look at us and laugh. But our bodies are not meant to last forever. At least not in this current state that they're in. We will all be changed, the Apostle Paul says. These bodies decay. They waste away. They lose stamina. I had my annual physical this week. My doctor said, oh, well, it looks like you turned 50 since you were here last time. Do you feel any different? I said, well, I don't feel any different from 49 to 50 But I feel different from 40 to 50. He had just turned 50 himself. He he agreed with that assessment. It's not that I can't do the yard work. It's not that I can't play the tournament or that I can't spend all day walking through an amusement park. It's not that. I thank God I can still do those things. But the older that I get, the more I have to push myself. I assume that's normal. Look, Paul felt the breakability of his body. 
the ordinariness of his body as compared to everyone else. But, but for Paul, there was far more going on than just getting old. Look, in Galatians 6, Paul says that he bore on his body the marks of Jesus. I feel certain you could still see the scars where Paul had been whipped. And rather than seeing Paul's boldness to press on under such persecution, the false teachers that had infiltrated the church at Corinth seemed to use Paul's persecutions as a reason to invalidate Paul's ministry. Well, apparently that hasn't changed very much in the day in which we live because there are many today that believe the mark of faithfulness is a life of ease, health, wealth, prosperity, and those things like that. Well, I'm certain that these false teachers were not expecting Paul to take their accusation and turn it into his defense. But that's exactly what he does here in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Now, I know we had our Bible conference last weekend. Let me remind you just really quickly where we are in this book. Uh, I know it's been a couple of weeks. This is Paul's fourth letter that he has written to the church at Corinth that we know of. It's his second canonical letter. Two of Paul's letters, the second letter and the fourth letter, have, by God's grace, been preserved for us. We know those as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But he always found himself writing letters of correction to this disorderly church located in Corinth. 1st Corinthians was written to a divided church to unite them, to answer a number of questions that they had, and to correct several theological errors. But this letter, Paul's actual fourth letter to them that we know of, Second Canonical, this was written to defend his apostolic ministry. It's just mind-blowing that after everything that they had been through together, Paul is having to defend himself as an apostle. He's the one that founded this church. He's the one through whom they were saved. And he was there a year and a half teaching them, laying the foundation for that congregation. Nevertheless, it seems that some legalistic teachers had infiltrated the church, much like had happened everywhere else that Paul had been. And the church at Corinth seems to be in danger of giving over to these false teachers. So Paul writes them this letter in urgent need. Oh, we've spent a month studying the New Covenant as Paul delved into the depths of the contrast between Old Covenant law and the New Covenant gospel of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 3. It's rich. It's heavy. I can't go back through all of that, but I hope that you remember it. If, if you're a guest here today, certainly we have those recordings. You can listen to those sermons. To sum it up, really, chapter 3 stresses that the New Covenant gospel was sufficient for ministry. Far better than the Old Covenant law. In fact, the, the second section in chapter 3 stresses the superiority of the New Covenant over the old Mosaic code. Next, we considered in chapter 3 how the New Covenant is actually able to change lives from the inside out by the Holy Spirit of God indwelling believers 
while the old covenant law was just external, trying to change people from the outside in, and it ends up doing nothing more than condemning us in our sin. Well, as chapter 4 begins then, Paul starts to sort of change focus. He explained what new covenant ministry was like in verses 1 through 6. I preached that sermon a couple of weeks ago. Really, it hinges on verse 5 where Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Look, if... If our intention is to preach ourselves and our tribe, if that is our focus, we are not carrying out the same ministry that the Apostle Paul was carrying out. Period. There's no way we can be. And really, we closed last time with this amazing statement by Paul, one I really think that modern religionists would would do well to study. He says this in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God created light in Genesis chapter 1, in creation. And God created the light in our hearts. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the faith of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here is that our faith is as much a creative act of God as creation itself. That's what Paul's saying. But really even more as his focus in this section is ministry, what he's stressing is that if people are to be saved through the preaching of the gospel, if they are to come to faith through our sharing of the gospel, God then must create a new creation. We'll actually get to that over in chapter 5 where Paul literally uses those words. Let me put it this way. Lost people, unbelievers, need to be born again. That's the way Jesus puts it in John chapter 3. Theologians would say they need to be regenerated. Well, that takes us right then into this next section that we just read that we're going to work through today. I think the ESV has a really good title. We'll just go with it. They pulled it right out of the text. Treasure in Jars of Clay. In this section, Paul stresses that God gets all the glory in salvation precisely because He has chosen to work through common vessels. All right, let's jump into this text. It's, it is rich. I hope it comes out that way. So he begins here in verse 7. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So there's this, there's this contrast going on. Paul says, But we have this. He, he's contrasting what we just saw in verse 6. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as seen in the gospel. He's contrasting that with us, those that are spreading the gospel. That's not just the preacher, by the way. Paul's not just saying apostles should be preaching the gospel or preachers should be preaching the gospel or Sunday school teachers should be preaching the gospel. All of us should be spreading the gospel. 
All of us are these jars of clay Paul is writing about here. Now really, this statement is not nearly as shocking to us as it should be. That this gospel treasure is in jars of clay. By the way, Paul is not just talking about our bodies being made of of dirt. That is true. According to the Genesis account, we were formed out of the dust of the ground. I and mean, we, We're made from dirt. That's just not what Paul intends here in this passage. Paul is actually referring to a piece of baked pottery. We might say a, a terracotta pot. I remember going to the kid with my parents, or going to the beach with my parents as a kid, and we always passed by old-time pottery down in Foley. I'm sure some of you have seen that build a huge Huge building. Ridiculous prices for pottery. Pottery today can be really big business. Ask the pottery barn, right? That's not what's going on here. Forget that picture. This is is all different. If you don't let that go, you're going to miss the point Paul's making. A clay jar back in the first century was the cheapest, most disposable storage pot of the ancient world. Quite literally, we find them every time we do an archaeological dig. They are cheap. They're everywhere. A clay pot back in Paul's day is the equivalent of a plastic grocery bag in our day. Very similar. John MacArthur writes this, quote, This is a cheap, baked clay pot, unrefined, ugly, breakable, replaceable, valueless. It's the little pot in which you put your plants, end quote. Right, that's it. It's useless. You break it, throw it away, and get another one. Again, today it would be like Paul saying we carry the gospel, which is the treasure here, around in a plastic grocery bag. Except the plastic grocery bag is us. We're the plastic grocery bag. The gospel is glorious. We aren't. That's Paul's point. Well, that makes perfect sense of verse 5 when Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. Why would we? We're the clay pot. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Why would you preach about the grocery sack when you can talk about the treasure that is contained within the grocery sack? That's precisely his point. Paul is actually explaining why God has chosen to save sinners through the instrumentality of the gospel, through us sharing the gospel with those around us. He's done it this way so that he gets all the credit. He says that. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Look, it doesn't matter if hundreds of thousands of people have come to faith under the ministry of a man. He doesn't get the credit. God does. Look, your spouse has never come home with groceries. And all you did was marvel at the plastic bag. You want to know what she bought. How'd you spend $400 at the grocery store? I bought milk and eggs this week. 
The grocery sack in and of itself is nothing. It's nothing. If you're cheap like us, you may use them as garbage sacks, but a lot of people actually throw those away. You're just the means through which the gospel is shared. Just like a grocery sack is the means of getting the the groceries from the store to your house. That's all they're for. In this picture then, the jars of clay are nothing special in and of themselves. They are common. And that's Paul's point. God has chosen to work through common vessels to save sinners. And in doing so, He obviously gets the credit. Because we ain't nothing but a clay pot. You see Paul's point? Now the false teachers in Corinth were pointing at Paul and they were saying that very thing. He ain't nothing but a common piece of pottery and he's even cracked. Paul responds to them essentially and says, You're right. That's precisely what I am. And the fact that scores of people are being brought to faith in Jesus through this this cracked clay pot is proof that God is at work. This is rich, actually. It really highlights the the sovereignty of God here. It it gives God His his rightful due. By the way, this this is perhaps one of the most damaging verses that I've ever preached relative to that that concept of hyper-Calvinism that we've talked about a number of times. The hyper-Calvinist, and I I want to believe the hyper-Calvinist has good intentions. I want to believe that. But the hyper-Calvinist preacher attempts to give God more glory by saying that God does not work through human instrumentality. In other words, God doesn't work through the preaching of the gospel to save sinners. But look, Paul is arguing precisely the opposite right here. Paul is saying God has chosen to work through jars of clay for the very purpose of displaying His surpassing power. Of displaying the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. God literally chose to display His glory, His surpassing power through frail vessels. That's us. This doesn't limit God. And anybody suggesting it does just doesn't get what Paul's saying. Paul said it doesn't matter how frail the vessel is, it's the treasure inside that makes the difference. I'll mention in passing before we move on to the next verse, it's possible that Paul has in mind here an earthenware oil lamp. We have certainly dug up some of those in archaeological finds. That picture, by the way, will preach that you know, we're just the clay oil lamp and the, the, the oil and the light is Jesus. I mean, that'll preach. The problem is Paul doesn't use that language here. If he'd have wanted to use the word lamp, he could have. And he didn't. So we'll just stick with the text. We're, we're terracotta pots. And the treasure is the new covenant gospel. That's, that's the point I think he's making. Well, okay, so how frail can the pottery be? Does it still? I mean, does it still need to be spruced up? Does it need to be painted? I mean, what do you think? What if it has a crack or two? Can it still be used? Oh, absolutely! Look what Paul says in verse eight. We're afflicted in every way. Think about this as it relates to a clay pot. I mean, he's saying this thing is is weather beaten. 
okay? We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Hold on, just right there. We'll get back to the text here in just a moment. So, so Paul is not only a jar of clay. He's a, he's a piece of cheap pottery, a plastic bag. He's used. He's beaten up. He may have been hanging on by a thread. That's what he's saying. But he was still hanging on. And he is still working. By the way, I doubt any of us actually comprehend the suffering that the Apostle Paul endured for the preaching of the gospel. I, I don't want to diminish, though, the suffering that we do go through. I mean, we, people do suffer in this life. I don't think Paul is lifting himself up here. He is simply saying, we are not only jars of clay, we are weather-beaten jars of clay. Some of you have suffered more than others of us have. Me, for sure, you've suffered more than I have. Uh, I, I've, I've had it good, thank God. But the Apostle Paul was the epitome of affliction. So much so that he says here, we are afflicted in every way. In every way. We might say we're hard-pressed on all sides. But Paul was getting backlash from quite literally every direction. He can't walk ten feet what someone isn't persecuting him. In fact, when we get to chapter 6 and later on in chapter 12, Paul has these two rather detailed lists of the persecution that he endures. I'm not going to turn over there and read those today because Lord willing we will get there. Here it's more general. But he does offer four really quick contrasts. And he's, he's really making the same point. Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Look, these, these make sense to us. These, these, aren't, these aren't hard to get. I mean, afflicted, but not crushed, paints the picture of being pressed on every side but not being demolished. That's, that's the point. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. That's, by the way, this is actually in Greek. There's a word play going on here that we just don't get in, in our English translation. Uh, it, it's one word and then the opposite of that word. Uh, one writer tried to sort of catch that Greek by translating it this way. We are stressed but not stressed out. That's, that's sort of what Paul is saying. Another commentator rendered it despairing, but not utterly desperate. I mean, that's sort of what's going on here in the underlying language. Then Paul says we are, we are persecuted, but not forsaken. Which means men may have afflicted Paul, but God never forsook Paul. Even many of the Corinthian saints that he's writing to had no doubt forsaken him. That's why he's writing this letter. But Paul found great encouragement in the fact that God did not forsake him. 
struck down, but not destroyed. And he can't help but think of a boxer that's, that's knocked down, but he gets right back up. For me, being a child of the 80s, I think of Ivan Drago knocking Rocky down. Rocky hops right back up and he says, you ain't so bad. You know, that's Paul. We're struck down, but we get right back up. We're not destroyed. But Paul endured in his life, but not apart from persecution. You know, I've often wondered what the health and wealth guys think about Paul. He doesn't fit their showroom model. Paul is the opposite of what is promised in the prosperity gospel today. He suffered all the time. And he is as faithful as faithful gets as far as human terms. Anyway, then notice Paul says he always carried in the body the death of Jesus. But wherever Paul went, whatever community he found himself in, the marks inflicted to him through persecution were there for everyone to see. We had stripes on his back, scars from being stoned, whatever, visible for everybody to see. Paul took up his cross when he followed Jesus. Well, that's what Jesus requires. Take up your cross and follow me. Paul took it up. And he suffered right through it. Moyer Hubbard writes this, quote, Paul's message was the cross preached. Paul's life was the cross lived. End quote. Amen. That's exactly what is being said. And by the way, the Greek word translated here is not the normal thanatos for, for death. It's a different word. It's ne- nekrois or something. Nekrosis, I think it is. I'm not a Greek scholar, so you all have to struggle through it. I'm, I don't have Brian's linguistic skills. <laughs> Necrosis, I think it is. It refers more, though, to the process of dying. Not, not death itself, but the, the process. You know, sometimes you, you'll hear someone who has gone into hospice and the doctor will say, well, they've, they've entered the, the dying process, the, the death process. That's, that's this word here. So Paul's life of suffering was an exhibition of Jesus' death on the cross. Not just the death, but the entire crucifixion process. That's what Paul's life was. I mean, this, is, this is rich, especially considering what God accomplished through the Apostle Paul, that he lived a life that exhibited death itself and the dying process, and yet God used him in immense, miraculous ways. And yet Paul here is saying, I am just a plastic grocery bag. I'm just a jar of clay. I'm a plastic bag with holes in it. I'm a jar of clay with cracks. God's still using him. God is still getting the job done, even with a cracked pot. You know, it may have seemed like Paul was on his last legs at times, but he just keeps going. Sort of like the Energizer Bunny. He just keeps going. And God was glorified in it all because God chose to work through this weather-beaten piece of cracked 
pottery to carry out his purpose. And then Paul says in the latter part of verse 10 there, he says, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Look, the false teachers were suggesting that Paul wasn't much to look at. Pointing out all the marks of persecution perhaps, and maybe more. We're given a little bit of what they said over in chapter 10. Paul actually quotes them where they said his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Down here in Alabama, we'd say he ain't much to look at. He ain't much of a public speaker. But Paul flipped it around on them. He said, you're right. I ain't much to look at. And I ain't much of a public speaker. But this this not so graceful speaker, this man who's not much to look at, is actually being used greatly by God. And that just tells you that God is great, not me. That's Paul's point here. Look, the more that Paul suffered, the more evident it was that his ministry was of God and God was working through him. You have to wonder if the false teachers sort of hate they ever brought this up. The way that Paul flips it on them. It's likely, by the way, that this life of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies, likely refers to the resurrection. In other words, the more that Paul was willing to suffer, the more sure we are that he really did see the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Sort of like the rest of the apostles, right? All but John dies a martyr's death. They went to the grave in persecution because they really did see Jesus alive. That very well may be what's going on here. I know I've said this before. We we do not talk about the resurrection enough. It's it's, it's far too great to limit it to one day a year. That's just wrong on our account. The resurrection of Christ gives us true hope for everything that we believe. Christ is our, our hope in life and death, like we just sang. In verse 11, Paul says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So our lives are lives of death, Paul says. We don't think like that. You're either alive or dead. But Paul says, no, no, we're living, but we're being given over to death all the time. Well, there's a, there's a number of things he could mean by this. Of course, we're all dying. We, we are. I mean, we all have dying cells. We, we lose them every single day. Even the littlest among us are losing cells to death all the time. Some of us have gray hair. Some of us don't have hair. Sorry, Ben. Some of us have debilitating medical conditions. Some of you suffer. I doubt, though, Paul is talking about those natural dying processes here. Because even the lost go through those things. There are gray-headed lost people. There are bald lost people. There are lost people that suffer with debilitating diseases. I think what he's talking about here is something only believers endure. Because he says that this has something to do with the life of Jesus being manifested in our mortal flesh. That that couldn't be said of every human. Only those who 
or trust in Christ, right? Well, Paul could be talking about putting the old man to death. Certainly we should be doing that. We heard a sermon on that last week. Though I still don't think that's what he's getting at here. This pottery picture, contextually, seems to be saying something else. I think this is Paul's point. Paul was bruised, battered, beaten, disposable. He was a piece of pottery with with chips and cracks. I think Paul is thinking about all the trials that he had endured, not only external trials, internal anxieties, even physical ailments that he had at times, things that hindered him from ministry, and yet he's saying, God still uses me. Paul's not saying, I'm great. No, that's not it at all. Surely we haven't... That's not Paul's point. Paul is saying God is great because he uses a jar of clay like me. And he ends this paragraph saying, So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Well, here's your goal for your Christian life right here. Right? Death is at work in us, but life in you. Nobody claims this as their life verse. But if we understood it, we would. Look, the trials and tribulations and persecutions we go through are opportunities to magnify God. Opportunities to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, many times I've heard of someone receiving a terminal diagnosis... And I pray, God, somehow use this to reach others. Help this person to share the gospel through this trial. And many times I've seen that happen. But that's Paul's point here. Death was at work in him. Or as he put it in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. That's what he said. And yet, through this daily death, that he experienced, God actually reached the Corinthians with the gospel. That's the you here in this verse, right? So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul is living this life of death, and yet through that, the Corinthians had the gospel preached to them. Realizing that helped Paul to know that there's actually a purpose then in suffering. It wasn't all for nothing. I know some of you remember that classic television wonder, Hee Haw. (laughs) Buck Owens and Roy Clark led this group of scrubs, and they sang gloom, despair, and agony on me. Y'all remember? Yeah, absolutely. I knew you knew it, Blake. (laughs) If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. That's what they said. If we don't have the right perspective, the perspective Paul has in this text, we get in that rut and we miss the wonder of the sovereign grace and glory of God to work through cracked and chipped jars of pottery. God delights to use people who have problems 
to exalt himself for his own glory. Now, I know you probably, as we read through this, you know, you, you know about Paul, you know everything that the Lord did through him. You think, well, Paul just had more grit than I have. Listen, he didn't just arrive here. This is not something that Paul just naturally had. Back in chapter 1, Paul wrote this. Don't forget it. Chapter 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's some despair. Paul said, I just said I would have died. But he goes on. He says, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It wasn't that Paul just had grit. That's not it. We're not just born embracing persecution. That's unnatural. Paul learned this through trial. So embrace your weaknesses. That's precisely the type of vessel God has chosen to work through. Broken, cracked pieces of pottery. Perhaps the problem with us Americans today is we're constantly trying to dress up the vessel rather than being willing to be a cracked piece of pottery for the gospel's sake. Maybe that's our real issue. Listen, we aren't the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. And listen, I'm not condemning a guy for for preaching in a coat and tie or for people dressing up formally to go to church. I'm not condemning that at all. We don't do that here. I'm not condemning it. But we need to make dead level certain we have this right. We are not the treasure. We are the plastic grocery bag. We are the weather-beaten terracotta pot from the first century. Common, disposable, replaceable. The treasure is the gospel. We're just the instrument God is using to get it to people. That's the point of Paul. New covenant ministry is grand and glorious. Paul makes that point in in chapter 3 and especially in in chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. And he's been very clear about that. But the glory of the gospel is the Savior, not the servant. The glory of the gospel is the master, not the slave. John MacArthur again writes, quote, Paul's humble view of himself was at the heart of what made him so usable. End quote. Amen. Look, the false teachers had no answer for Paul here. They had no answer for why such an unimpressive type of person like Paul made such a huge impact on this world. Why was his ministry so successful? Here's why. Paul wasn't out promoting himself. And that's precisely why God was working through him. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But that needs to be our example. And you need to forget the idea that Paul just plowed on through without any pain, without any desire for the persecution to stop. That's not the case. But Paul, when we get to chapter 12, we'll find out Paul actually prayed fervently for the persecution to stop. 
God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I I fear sometimes we think Paul wasn't really plagued like we are with persecution. He just sort of welcomed it with open arms. No, perish the thought. He was human. He didn't want to be whipped or stoned or rejected. But he also knew God was working through him. And so he pressed on. And the work he was doing carried eternal implications. And so he persevered. Let me, let me add this point. I'm, I'm bringing it to a close, but let me add this point. The suffering of God's children, some of you have physical issues, some of you have emotional issues, we all, we all are in the process of, of dying. The suffering of God's children is part of God's plan to exhibit His glory through the gospel. It's part of His divine purpose. You aren't anywhere that God hasn't allowed you to be. It's not, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. No, God purposes our trials. See, I don't don't know that I'm comfortable thinking about that. Would Would it be more comfortable if you thought it was outside of God's control? I think I'd a lot rather God be in control of it. And He is. And look, I'm not, I'm not in any way suggesting that suffering is easy. It is not. It was not for Paul. It's not going to be for us. But God has intended a greater good. That's, he's going to be glorified through the gospel of Jesus. To Paul, the gospel was the means through which God saved sinners. And so he put his life on the line daily to share it. What's convicting is that we live with such freedom and we have such means to actually share the gospel and we oftentimes don't because we're just concerned somebody may think ill of us. Not that we'll be whipped or stoned or thrown in jail or beheaded. Look, let us see what Paul is saying here. And let us be encouraged as we walk out that door today to be that broken, chipped clay pot and let the light of the gospel shine forth because that's where the treasure is anyway. Stand with me, if you will.